was a sermon I gave about a year ago, uh, regarding the time of examination. Now, obviously, we examine ourselves daily if we bring every thought into captivity. But there is, I think, uh, a formal time of examination in Scripture. And we went through all the Scriptures during that uh, sermon about the first day of the first month. You might remember that. And in each case, I think without fail, as I recall at least, uh, every time the first day of the first month is mentioned, it was in the context of some kind of examination or judgment, uh, whether it was of specifically the self or of Egypt, I mean of Israel or, or whatever, it, it indicated a time of judgment or examination. So we've always used 1 Corinthians 11 to say examine yourselves before the Passover, but it's always been sort of a cloudy thing. Uh, when? You know, some start cleaning their houses three months ahead of time. Uh, some start three minutes before sundown. Uh, you know, there are various approaches to the situation. And it isn't my purpose to go into all that again, but it does appear that the Bible is indicating that the formal time of examination is from the first day of the new year, until the 14th when you take the Passover. So he puts <clears throat> a time there that we need to be looking introspectively to seriously consider it, to pray about it maybe at the beginning of the new year, and to begin to think seriously about ourselves and about our flaws and the things that we might need to overcome. And then by the time we take the Passover, we have a much clearer view having stripped away some deceptions, self-deceptions, uh, some attitudes, and bared them to the light to take them before Christ. Then, during the Passover, those symbols we take represent that sin being removed. However, it is not quite that simple. It is followed up by six more days of unleavened bread, uh, actually almost seven when you consider that the Passover is the beginning of the first, and I think that makes sense, so that you have <clears throat> seven days then to formally put sin away. So the 14 days beforehand is recognition. The seven days after that are do something about it, action days. Well, that's a total of 21 days at the beginning of every year, so that you get the year started off right, headed in the right direction. And three times seven, by the end of the seventh day of unleavened bread, it's, you're, you've been told three times by then, times seven, that sin should be out and you should be ready for the kingdom of God. Now, that's the symbolism. <clears throat> we do this every year because we don't always or have not yet lived up to the symbol. But we need to grasp and understand the symbolic things that we are going through so that we can apply them in our lives. So this is a very important time of the year, beginning Wednesday evening. 
You begin that three times seven examination culminating in seven days of working at getting rid of what you find in the first 14 days. Isn't it interesting in a way that it's 14 days of finding it and only seven days of getting rid of it? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I guess I should have used this as part of the sermon because it is a good lead-in to where we're going. We're discussing the law and the two trees of Eden. And with the symbolism we've just discussed, and perhaps it should be included in the sermon, the announcements, it's on the tape, isn't it? Uh, Let's just start it there then, as far as the tape is concerned. when you, when you get ready to make the, the final tape. But uh, now I got on the detail and forgot the, where I was headed with that. But, oh yeah, we're examining those two trees in the light of New Testament theology or Christianity in today's world. Now, if indeed that tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the law, then that raises a question of is the law evil or is the law good? And that one has been bandied back and forth and argued a lot. So where I headed after discussing that was, let's look at the law from a New Testament perspective, essentially. And what does it say there? Because there are certain parts of the New Testament, a very small part actually, which people manage to have diverging views on and use to show that the law is done away with and does not need to be kept. But the point I was leading up to with Passover and unleavened bread is they kept Passover and the days of unleavened bread in the New Testament church after everything that had been done away with was done away with. Okay? Christ died. What did the New Testament church do thereafter? They kept the feasts of the Old Testament, did they not? Did they understand that those were still to be kept? Did they have such a great relief that Christ had died now, we don't have to keep the law, we don't have to keep the holy days in the New Testament church? Now, they should have been, those twelve disciples, the most informed people on what God, Christ, wanted in His New Testament church. Would you not think? They had a better idea than any theologian or commentator or Catholic or Protestant or Buddhist ever since has ever had. That should go without saying, but it is commonly overlooked. What was their practice? Now, Paul, whom they go to to say the law is done away and you don't need to keep any of these things, said, I must get to Jerusalem by the fast, did he not, speaking of atonement. And all through the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles were keeping the holy days. He started the church, after all, on what? Pentecost. If it had been done away, what's the point? But it hadn't been. He waited after his sacrifice and told them, you wait here in Jerusalem 50 days 
And don't you move, because what I'm going to do is give my Holy Spirit. Now, wouldn't a God of love in the New Testament theology, in which love is the only thing, wouldn't he have given them the Holy Spirit when he left? Because he loved them? If love, in the Protestant context, is all there is, why would he make them wait 30 days to the day of Pentecost? It's a very, very important day in the plan of God. So he kept the Passover with them and said, I have set the example, and you are to do this, didn't he? You're to wash each other's feet. And then he gave his Holy Spirit, which they all claim to have, on Pentecost of all days. Because it has great meaning in the New Testament church. And that's the day that the New Testament blessings, healings, along with the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, came. You'll find this all through the New Testament. I'm not going to belabor the point. But you can look up the various holy days and find that they were being kept. Unleavened bread, Pentecost, and so on. Now, I want to continue the thought from last time, and I, I will say this uh, again as a statement, you can get really confused in Paul, particularly parts of Romans and Galatians, is where most people go when they try to prove their ideas about what Paul and Christ and the New Testament church believed or did, and what they should do today. But instead of going there and trying to get into that wrangle and that argument, and I'm not afraid of it, but you need to go to the clear places first and establish what everybody else thought and what Christ himself had taught, and with that all in mind, then go to Paul, if you need to, to try to figure Paul out. But you had better have the basic truth in mind before you ever go there. Otherwise, you can get all confused like so many have, and we'll see that here in a minute. But before leaving Hebrews, I want to touch again here, because we read in Hebrews 8 and now in chapter 10 last time, that not would the law just be written on stones or on your doorpost, as instructed in the Old Testament, but it has been upgraded in the New Covenant. Now he will write his commandments in your heart. His laws, it says right here in verse 16. This is the new covenant, the one that I will make, the one that he had referred to in Jeremiah when he said, I will write my laws in your heart. So, Jeremiah gave a prophecy of that, and the disciples become apostles, then lived the reality of that. That prophecy was fulfilled in them, even as it is being fulfilled in you and me. And their sins and iniquities, verse 17, while I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That is the offering. That is the final, the full offering was his sacrifice. That doesn't mean that you won't sin and need to be forgiven. It's just that that is a continuing sacrifice. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ. It is his blood that gives us boldness, confidence, strength 
to go into the holy of holies wherein is no sin, the Father himself. Now notice verse 20. By a new and living way. Christianity is referred to as a way of life in Scripture. And he here is describing the new and living way. Now, Protestants would tell you there is a new way. That old law and all that Old Testament stuff is gone, done away with. There's a new way. All right? Here we find in Scripture a new and living way. And after that is stated, we shall find what that new and living way actually is because the, God, the Bible is not going to give you indication that there is such a thing without telling you what it is. You need to know what it is if you're going to have a new and living way, okay? Otherwise, it's not new and living to you. It's not there. It's referred to, but it doesn't exist unless you know what it is. Okay? <clears throat> By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So he's saying that the new and living way that we are to live was consecrated by the sacrifice of Christ. So, what we're about to read here is what Christ did. It is the new and living way. It had to do with his sacrifice and all that was done there. And having an high priest over the house of God. And the scripture is very clear here in Hebrews and other places in the New Testament, that Christ is that high priest set on the throne of God, and he is the go-between, the mediator for us here on this earth. I think everybody understands that, even Protestants. I say even. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be sarcastic or cynical, but even. We'll let the chips fall. <clears throat> All right. 22, let us draw near. Now, what was the problem from Eden on? We had been far from God. There was a breach in the relationship. It was destroyed. That closeness, that love, that emotion that had been there was mangled. It was wrecked. It was ruined. And they hid out of fear. So now, with this new and living, living way, let us draw near. In other words, this new and living way is designed to heal the breach, to solve the problem between us and God, and between us and each other. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, so it is to do, or has to do, with our hearts. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, in other words, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And His blood sprinkled on our heart removes the sin and clears our conscience because we don't have to live in fear or dread of our past sins. They are forgiven in the blood of Christ. And our bodies washed with pure water. The washing of what? The water is the Word of God. So the key here is His blood for our sins and then the water, the pure water, the Word of God, cleanses us so that we are no longer filthy and dirty. 
And He is the Word of God. Both the words written here are His words, and therefore He summarizes and is the Word, and referred to that as one of His titles. All right, verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Don't give up. Don't say it isn't any use. Hold fast this profession or this way that we have been given. We are professional people. We need to act professional. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to what? Good works. Can you believe that? The new and living way, the consecration of the blood of Christ, has to do with good works. And yet people will go back to sections of things Paul wrote and say we don't have to have works. But here is Paul himself saying that the new and living way involves provoking love and good works. I'll show you my faith by my works, he said himself. But they say the works of the law are done away. That you don't have to keep them. And yet, why then, in this context of all contexts, is it saying to provoke to love and to good works? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. A lot of people in the church today are saying, well, I've had it with organized religion. I've had it with men being the teachers. What does the Bible say? Now, I can understand why we might get fed up with some of the things that some of the teachers say. That's why it's imperative that each and every one of us look at this word and see what it says, not how somebody interprets it. And that's what we're trying to do today, is look at the very clear Scriptures that don't need any interpretation. Parables need interpretation. Some parts of Romans and Galatians may need interpretation. So, let's look at the ones that don't need it. The ones that just simply stand on their own and are very simple, direct. Now, I could say to somebody, stop that! Now, how much interpretation does that need? Do I need to explain for 20 minutes what I meant by that? I don't think so. Well, there's some very clear statements in the Bible that people absolutely ignore. Now, if we're going to get this thing straight, we've got to get away from those areas that somebody might interpret one way or another and all over the map and get down to the clear statements. What does it say here, 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 and here? Now, if there's something that is confusing, analyze it in the light of everything very clear that you've already read. That'll keep you from getting in trouble. Because there are no contradictions. So, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and yet some people will say, well, I'm not going to meet with anybody, I know what I'm doing, I'm on my own, I'm an independent Christian. There is no such thing as an independent Christian. Now, there are independent people, 
But you cannot be an independent Christian. It's impossible. Because he built his church. And that church is plugged into him. Now, if you're independent of organizations, the problem is you haven't found the right one yet. <coughs> and you better make post-haste finding it. Because we are commanded, clearly, right here, to assemble ourselves together. If you don't obey this, then you are cutting yourself off from the people of God. And if you are cut off from the people of God, you are cutting yourself off from God. <coughs> Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And there are some who do that. But exhorting one another. You see, we have a responsibility. If you go off and say, I'm going to be an independent Christian and I'll, I'll get to the kingdom of God on my own. I don't need any help. That's called self-deception. That's called a devious mind that is deceitful and desperately wicked. Because... This new and living way is to be with the people of God and to exhort one another because we all need help. And the love of God, then, draws people together. It doesn't lead them to be independent and out on their own, does it? To exhort someone, you have to be around them. So assembling and exhorting are both instructions here of the new and living way. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, we see it far more today than he could have even seen it when he wrote this. So if this was compelling then, it is even more so today. Now notice this, verse 26, for those once saved, always saved, and you don't have to worry about it or do anything. Verse 26. Now remember again, this is the new and living way we're discussing here. This is the context. This isn't Old Testament. This isn't a reference back to the old. This is an explanation of the new covenant that is written in our hearts and minds. Okay? If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now that is a very scary scripture. And if you were in the church, in Christianity, however you might wish to define it, and then you go back to a way of sin, voluntarily, willfully, there is no more sacrifice for sin, and what is the wages of sin? Death. Romans 6, 23. Just a chapter before, one of the big ones they used to prove the law is done away and you can't sin anymore, so you don't have to worry about it. Boy, they. So if someone sins voluntarily of their own accord, willfully, saying, ah, forget about the law, I'll live how I want, and I don't need the law of God anymore. But what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. 
So what he is saying here is if you break the law, once you have been brought to Christ and the new and living way, the new covenant, and you break the law, there is no more forgiveness of sin, and you will die eternally. How clear can you get? Now, let's not you define sin. Let's not them define sin. Let's let God define sin. It is the transgression of the law. And New Testament, New Covenant believers who go into a life, a habit, a practice, a way of sin, that is, breaking the law, will have no more forgiveness of sin. Christ's sacrifice for them will be removed and they will die eternally. Now, who wrote that? Apparently, Paul. The one they say said, you don't have to worry about sin or works or obedience. The law is done away. We live by grace only. That's the Protestant view. And it's the view of a lot of people who have gone back to wallow in their own vomit. Or the dog that eats his vomit or the sow that wallows in the pit, as James puts it. They're in a very, very scary position if they indeed were converted and have God's Holy Spirit or had it. So what is there for them? A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Anyone who does not keep the law of God in the new covenant where the laws are written in your heart has a fiery judgment ahead. The lake of fire is what a fiery judgment is here. And they are also classed as what? An adversary. An adversary of God. Anyone who says the law of God is done away under the new covenant is an enemy, an adversary of God. That's what he's saying here, isn't it? Isn't that clear? He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. They broke the law, had two or three people see it, throw stones at them till they die. And he's equating that Old Testament eye for an eye judgment with the judgment that will be wrought on a spiritual level with people who have had God's Spirit and then go the other way, who give up what? The conditions of the new covenant, which is the law of God written in your heart. And it shows that a converted or baptized Christian can still sin. And sin, again, is the transgression of the law. So if a converted New Testament Christian breaks the law, it is imputed as sin, and Christ's sacrifice will no longer apply for them, and they will die. In the words of Paul the Apostle. And if it was not written by Paul, as some might argue, then whatever apostle wrote it, God inspired it, and it is in the New Testament canon as part of the Bible and part of the Word of God, and His Word is truth. So what you're reading here in Hebrews doesn't matter if you want to argue about who wrote it. It's truth. It's in the Word. 
part of the word. It's profitable for instruction and in righteousness. Okay. Let's go down. Uh, I think that makes that point. We could go on. There's plenty more here if we want to read it. Let's look at chapter 13, though, before we leave Hebrews. Uh, because this is the summary statement, okay? There's much more in the book of Hebrews that indicate we're supposed to do good works. It talks about all those who will be in the kingdom of God out of the Old Testament in chapter 11, for instance. And it says they walked by faith. And how did they show their faith? By their works. They were doers. They weren't just living under grace, but they went about their lives doing what God instructed. But let's close it out here in Hebrews 13. Uh, I want about verse 20. Here's his salutation. This is the end of it. Here is his parting word, if you will, or his summary, or his closing statement as a part of a speech, or a book, or a writing. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Emmanuel. So this heavenly Father who resurrected His Son. If you're going to make a summary statement, you want to refer to the highest authority possible to make sure that what you've just said is honored, believed, Accepted, okay? So he calls on the Father. That makes this pretty important. That great shepherd of the sheep, speaking of Christ, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is the new, the everlasting covenant, the spiritual covenant being addressed here. So the Father and the Son who died and whose blood covered our sin. Make you perfect in grace. Now, what mine says. Make you perfect in every good work. I call on God the Father and His Son that if you are to achieve perfection, which is what we're here to do, become you perfect, then it is through good Works. Works of what? What does the Bible speak of? Works of cow breeding? The works of the law. Doing the law. Keeping the things that were said that we are to do. The first and great commandment, and the second is like it. The Ten Commandments. And all those things that are attached to those commandments as statutes and ordinances to explain how to love God and love your neighbor. That's what the rest of the Bible is all about. On those two hang the whole message of the law and of the prophets. And the prophets prophesied of what? The new covenant. And now we're reading about the new covenant. And it is here from the day of Pentecost forward in Acts 2. We're still under the conditions of the New Testament if we're converted Christians. We're still under the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth of the Old Testament if we are not converted and have not received the Holy Spirit as part of the New Covenant that is only offered to a very few. They still come under the administration of death and will die as a result of their sins in the end time events that are about to hit us. 
we have opportunity to live through that and beyond that if we keep the terms of the new covenant, which is making ourselves perfect in good works of the law. It's quite simple. That which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Emmanuel the Christ, to whom glory be forever and ever. Now, let's go to the book of James, which is coming up next here, because I want to do a, a quick survey, in that sense, of Peter, James, John, the other apostles, apart from um, Paul, who was grafted in at a later time anyway. He wasn't one of the originals. All right, let's go to the book of James. He was a servant of God and of the Lord, Emmanuel of Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greedy. So he says who he is, and that he represents whom? He represents Christ, and he was writing to the twelve tribes, writing to Israel, and he said, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, and how you will be tried, and you will have to learn patience, and had let patience have her perfect work. Does this make it sound easy? Now, the Protestants would sell you the bill of goods that you're under the grace of God, so it doesn't matter. It's, it's easy. I don't have to fight myself anymore. Now that I understand, now that I'm enlightened, it's easy. Don't you believe that for one second? Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow and rugged and hard is the way that leads to life. In the words of the Christ. Anybody who believes that Christianity is easy hasn't read the Bible very much. They've read a few scriptures they picked out that they thought meant something they don't mean at all. And they usually come out of Romans or Galatians. Okay? But there are a lot of things in there where Paul said he fought himself into subjection. And the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he did. He said it was a struggle. And yet people quote Paul to say, life's easy as a Christian. Where do you get this? You get it because you want it. That's all. It's that simple. You want it to be easy. You don't want to have to do anything. We don't want to work. We want it to be easy. Now, what does James say? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, verse 8. And uh, let's go down to verse 13. Well, let's see verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. Have you ever noticed that temptation is easy? You have to give in right away. It's not too bad. But if you resist temptation, it's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy at all. For when he is tried, tested, he shall receive the crown of life. Receiving life, everlasting life, the second tree comes after resisting temptation. After overcoming temptation. 
All seven of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are told, overcome, and you will be in my kingdom. Is overcoming easy? I've never have found it that way myself. If you have, I want to get with you right after services. Let's put our heads together, and I want to hear about how easy it is to overcome, because to me it's always been tough. Not easy. Living a Christian life is not easy. All you have to do is love your neighbors yourself. Did you ever try that? Actually try it? Where you would do unto someone else only as you would have them do to you? Sounds easy if you say it fast. <laughs> try living it. We're trying to do it here, aren't we? Is it easy? No. It's hard to treat everybody the way you would want to be treated. Do you like to be talked about or stabbed in the back or gossiped about? Do you like to be criticized and judged and put down? No, you don't like it. When you hear about it, who told you that? Where did you hear that? Oh, we can get indignant. Something said something about us. We don't like it at all. And I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm talking to you because you're the ones that get that way. But it's so easy to say it about somebody else, isn't it? You just try treating somebody else like you want to be treated and see how easy that is. Isn't that what Christ said it's all about? This is no easy road we're on. No man say, let no man say, verse 13, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. So, well, God must be tempting me. I've heard people say that over the years once in a while. No, God doesn't do that. Who tempts you? Let's see if it says. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We are tempted when we want to do something that is unlawful. That's what temptation is. It happens to every one of us every day, doesn't it? Aren't you tempted to say things and do things or think things that you shouldn't think or say or do? Sure you are. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin? And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Boy, when James is resurrected, I sure hope that there's some Protestant preacher around to explain to him what it was he didn't get. He's talking as a converted New Testament Christian, a servant of God and of the Lord Christ a very high official in Christ's New Testament church, why is he talking about temptation and lust and sin? If the law is done away, and breaking the law is what sin is. Because you don't have to worry about it. So why waste his breath? He must have just not got it. He should have read Romans and Galatians a little closer. 
James and Peter didn't always get along with Paul, remember? Who won that one? And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Breaking the law brings death to New Testament Christians. Wow! Maybe James has it right here. Do not err, my beloved brethren. He said, don't get this wrong. Don't get what wrong? What he's talking about. That's what you can't get wrong. He's talking here about sin and death. You don't want to be an error on that, do you? Every good gift and every perfect gift from his, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, who with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. And we're reading the word of truth here about temptation, sin, and death. Is he leading these New Testament Christians astray, all twelve tribes of them, wherever they were scattered, by telling them they had to keep the law, and if they broke it, they would die? I don't think so. He's talking about how we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's talking to the first fruits here. New Testament church. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, didn't I just mention that a few minutes ago? About treating others as you would want to be treated? Now, that's what he's talking about in verse 19 is the law of God, which is love your neighbors yourself. Don't get angry quickly. Don't have let your wrath show. What does that mean? If you get angry quickly, it means you're judgmental and critical. That's what it means. Very simple. You're not treating somebody else like you'd like to be treated. You know, you want people to be slow to speak about you. You want them to be slow to anger with you. Then why are we so quick to be critical, judgmental, and angry at others? Is it that we don't esteem them higher than we do ourselves, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians? For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Anger does not equate to righteousness. It has nothing to do with it. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, what is filthy, that which is unclean, that which is unlawful. We're talking about the law here. And superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. The engrafted word is not the one that comes natural, is it? The natural man is what? The natural man is full of the works of the flesh. Lust, vanity, jealousy, greed, envy, lust, you know, all those things. The carnal mind is an enemy of God. It is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it, Jeremiah 17, 9. So the human mind, of and by itself, naturally, does not accept, does not want the Word of God. 
The Word of God is the opposite of that. So it has to be engrafted. The human mind has to be converted from the work of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. That is an engrafting. It is a changing. It has a different root base, if you will. When you have a tree, let's say it's an apple tree, that is a root base, and you take a limb from another tree and you graft it into that tree, then the root changes. The human mind is rooted in evil. So you take your mind out of this tree of evil and you implant it or engraft it in a tree that is rooted in Christ. Now that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden is very important here because... They had only known good. There had been no disobedience. They had not lied, cheated, stolen, done anything bad. It didn't exist in their lives. And then they deceived, cheated, lied, disobeyed, and suddenly their eyes were opened to a whole new world of evil. And the only way that that evil can be defined so that you can avoid it is through a law. So, the law became obvious, and it was enacted in their lives at that point. Now, from that point on, then, since the law defined what would lead to life and that which would lead to death, you read the law, and you keep it so you can live, so that you can eventually be given the tree of life. Now, if you go the other way and break it, you will die eternally unless the wages of your sin are covered by the blood of a Savior. Now, once we are covered under the blood of the Savior, <coughs> then we are to live a life without sin. And when we goof, we still have that there as a continuing sacrifice. But should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, you still continue to keep the law because the law leads to life. It's holy and just and good and wonderful. The law is not evil. The penalty of the law is evil. Death is an enemy. It is the last enemy that will be destroyed when we are changed to spirit and given eternal life, 1 Corinthians 15, last verse or two. All right? Am I off base here? The engrafted word which is able to what? Save your souls. So he says, don't make an error. Get rid of the works of the flesh and be doers of the word. Do everything that this book tells you to do. And it tells you to do a lot of things. And not here is only deceiving your own selves. People think they can go to church, hear the Word, and they're saved. And once saved, they're always saved. Can't happen. If you don't have a sacrifice to cover your present and future sins... 
You're going to die. If you think that, you're like a man beholding your natural face in a glass, for he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Is that why Paul said, examine yourself and then keep the Passover? Why would you need to examine yourself if you're done already saved? Pardon the English or destruction of it. Well, they don't keep the Passover, do they? They don't think they need it anymore. Well, then why in the world was Paul telling them, keep it? If they didn't need to. Christ had already died. This was a memorial service kept every year. And he was still telling them to do it. And if they examined themselves and did it, without really thinking it through and having the right attitude that they were drinking death to themselves. Damnation, he said. Does that carry some weight? Is that clear? He said, examine yourself and then take it. Now, isn't that what James is saying here? What does he say? He said... Don't be like somebody who just looks in the mirror and brushes himself off and says, Oh, I look pretty good today. Go on about life. Well, he says, No, you can deceive yourself. Verse 25, But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty. What does the law of liberty do? If you keep it, it liberates you from the penalty of the law, which is death. It liberates you from bad relationships, doesn't it? If you don't lie, cheat, and steal, you get along with people a whole lot better. If somebody lies, cheats, and steals with you, you don't like it a bit, and you probably don't count them as a friend very much. If they keep doing it, they won't be your friend anymore. So breaking the law of lying, cheating, and stealing and others destroys the relationship. Keep it. Hey, you get along fine. You don't cheat me. You don't lie. You don't steal from me. We'll get along. We're pretty good friends. Not if it's the other way around. So you look into the law of liberty and continue therein. Wow! James says you not only look at the law, which will liberate you from the penalty of the law, which is death, and you keep living by the law, continue therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deeds. They say you don't need works and deeds. James says you do. Don't just look at yourself and say, I'm okay. But look in the law that brings life. Keeping the law leads to life. Breaking it leads to death. Is the law there, therefore bad? No, it leads to life if you keep it. Why do they try to find something that says you don't need to keep it? Because they don't like to keep it. They like to lie, cheat, and steal. Pharisees did. 
All mankind always has. Does keeping all law appeal to you as a human being? Never did to me. Why does a stolen apple always seem sweeter? It's the thrill. It's the excitement of giving in to temptation and doing something that you know you're not supposed to do and thinking you got away with it. That's what makes it taste better. But what if you get caught? Then suddenly it kind of goes bad in your mouth, especially if somebody's holding a shotgun on you out there by their apple tree. I had one of my cousins come home one time. His farmer loaded salt in his shotgun. And he and his watermelons and butt were all salted when he got home. Suddenly stealing watermelons wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be when you're picking pellets of salt out of your own rear end. And nobody volunteered to help him. <laughs> if any man among you seem to be religious, just appears religious or righteous or whatever, like the Pharisees and Sadducees appeared to be, or tried to appear to be. And bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. That's what vain means, in vain, worthless. Doesn't do him a bit of good. So what is that saying? He seems religious, but he doesn't control his tongue and deceives his heart that he can say what he wants to about somebody. You see, with the tongue we hurt others, and we're not treating them as we want to be treated, so we're breaking the second law on which hang all the law and the prophets. The two things Christ said summarize the law, Matthew 19 and Matthew 22. It says your religion is vain. Well, what do we want out of religion? We want eternal life, don't we? We want to live forever in peace and prosperity in the kingdom of God. But, if you don't bridle your tongue, then your religion is nothing but vanity. It passes away, and you will not be then allowed the tree of life. You break those two laws that Christ summarized, and you will not enter life. So, keeping the commandments has everything to do with eternal life. Pure religion... And undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So good works are needed. Take care of those who are in need emotionally, physically, economically, whatever. That is required. And not to have the spots of the world on you. What are the spots of the world? We'll get to the book of Jude pretty quick. The spots of the world are lying, cheating, stealing, fornication, adultery, murder, Sabbath breaking. Those are what spot you and make a spotted dog or hog, depending on you, I suppose, both unclean animals. You are. We are to have white garments of righteousness, which means they are not spotted by sin, and that takes some work.
Now, what are the works of the world? What are the works of the flesh? Go to Galatians 5. Paul says this. The works of the flesh are lying, cheating, stealing, defrauding. On and on and on it goes. The things you see going around you that you see Protestants doing who are under grace and breaking the law can't kill them because they're once saved, always saved. I was witness just yesterday to some really good Mormons cheating, lying, and stealing from one another. And it didn't repair the breach between them at all. In fact, I think it created some murder in some hearts. Now, those are good Christians that are saved. Or are they? Let's go to chapter 2, verse 5 of James. Now, remember who this guy is. He's the one that spent time with Christ and was made one of the apostles who will rule over one of the tribes of Israel in the future and is a pretty good one to read today by New Covenant Christians. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to them that love Him? Now, He has promised the kingdom to those that love Him. What is love? 1 John 5.3. Let's let the Bible define what love. Love isn't just a little nice feeling in your chest and your tummy and your between your ears. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. This is a definition. This is like reading a dictionary, is it not? You look up a word in the dictionary and it says what? The moon is. It describes the moon. Alright, we have in the Bible, the Word of God, which defines everything about God. It's like a dictionary of spirituality. So we have a defining statement made by whom? John. We'll get to it later, but I have to refer to it here. This is the love of God that you keep His commandments. New Testament by John the Beloved. He has promised His kingdom, eternal life, to them that keep His commandments. Just put the definition of love in this verse, and you find that life is promised to them that keep the commandments. Pure and simple. Love and keeping the commandments are synonyms. They are one and the same, according to God's definition. Very plain, defining statement. But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Don't rich lawyers and look at this nation today. Verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. Now what is the royal law? I've heard people argue that the royal law is different from the Ten Commandments or God's law. Now who, may I ask, is royal? Isn't the king of the universe the highest form of royalty there is? The royal law is the law of the king of the universe. That's what the royal law is. 
He's not speaking of some law of liberty that's different than the law of God. The law of liberty, the law... He explains what the law of liberty is. Shows what false religion and true religion is based on the way we treat each other, which is what Christ said defines the Ten Commandments. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture... So the royal law is defined by Scripture. It's not some law that came out of from Pluto, out of the blue. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Tells you right here what the royal law is. It's that one which Christ Himself said we are to do, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. What's the Ten Commandments? Summarized by love God and love your neighbor. And Christ is the one who did that summary. But if you have respect to persons, in other words, you put some above others in terms of judgment. doesn't mean you can't have friends above other friends. I'll explain that a little later. But if you willingly put one above another and misuse or abuse them by so doing, you commit sin. What is sin? I know this is a broken record, but sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. And are convicted of the law as transgressors. Transgression of the law is a sin. And not loving your neighbor as yourself is a sin. And the wages of sin is death. And we've all done it, so we do need a Savior. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, keeps the whole thing, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, what is this law of liberty and this law, this royal law, spoken of here? Let James define it. Let's don't go somewhere else. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. Are these some laws of liberty or royal laws that came again from Pluto? No, James defines it very clearly here. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking to New Testament Christians. And he's talking about life and death eternally. How far did Christ have to go with the young rich man and said, I've kept all the law? He's okay, fine. Go sell all you have and come and follow me. Oh, you mean you broke the first one? You put your money ahead of God? Well, I'll be. He didn't have to go through all ten with him. All he had to do was say, oh, you've kept them? All right. How about the first one? Willing to sell what you got, or do you put it above God? Case closed. James is just repeating that right here. So speak you. Who's you? New Testament Christians. And so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So he mentions the law of liberty. He talks about the Ten Commandments. And then he says that's what you're going to be judged by is that law of liberty. Keeping it relieves you. Now, can the law save you? If you had never, ever broken it, 
The answer is yes. If Adam and Eve had never disobeyed God in anything, they would have ultimately, if they'd proved that they would continue living that way, they'd resisted Satan and resisted temptation and never ever sinned, they would have been offered the tree of life, eternal life. Because they would have never broken the law. So keeping the law could have saved them. But since every one of us has broken it, it can't save us. We've got to have a Savior. We've got to have somebody to wipe away the penalty of infringement or transgression or disobedience. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. Was James watching the birdies when Christ was speaking in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and not paying attention to what was being said? Did Christ say in that sermon, in that teaching, if you have mercy, I'll forgive you. If you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. So, was all the Sermon on the Mount done away with when he died then? And that was just speaking to physical Israelites, as some will try to show you? I don't think so. James is still preaching that same party line right here after Christ had already gone. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith? He can, you can say you have faith all day long. And have not works. Can faith save him? Now, it says, by grace are you saved through faith. Paul wrote that. Well, what kind of faith? I'll show you my faith by my works, by the things that I do, is how I will show my faith. But you can say you got it all day long, but if you don't do works, faith isn't going to save you, because you have to have good works, obedience, and loving your neighbor in an active, proactive way in order to be forgiven yourself. Show mercy on your neighbor. Or you won't be forgiven. And if you're not forgiven, that implies sin, does it not? You will not be in the kingdom of God. It's really quite simple, just hard to follow. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them the things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Has he gained anything by his relationship with you? If you say, I'm sorry, you're hungry, see ya. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead. Being alone. It doesn't do you any good to have faith in your mind in God unless you follow it up by doing those things which help others, loving your neighbor. If you were really, really hungry, and you knocked on somebody's door and said, man, I haven't eaten in two days, I don't have anything to eat, could you just give me anything to eat, please? And they say, be warmed and filled, see ya. You wouldn't be happy. You wouldn't like that. You wouldn't be treated the way you wanted to be treated. So that man that just slammed the door in your face could say, I have faith. I'm a good Christian. I'm saved. I don't need works. I'll be in the kingdom of God because I'm saved. 
his faith, his belief, and grace only, or once saved, always saved, will never save him. Faith, that kind of faith is dead. And how do we receive salvation? The just shall live by faith, Hebrews 11, 1, 2, 3, somewhere right in there. Yes, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show, you, show me your faith without your works. We have a lot of people who are Protestants who say, I have faith, I don't need works. What did James say? I will show you my faith by my works. I'll keep the law. I'll love my neighbor as myself. You believe that there's one God, and you do well. Well, good. The devils also believe and tremble. But will you know, O vain man? What kind of man is a vain man? A man whose life is not going to be worth anything and is not going to accomplish anything and he's not going to be in the kingdom of God. That faith without works is dead. Let's see. Verse 24. You see then, with this explanation, James says, that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. It takes both. It takes law and grace. It takes the works of the law and faith. For as the body, verse 26, without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I think he makes it pretty clear. Let's go to chapter 5. Um, let's go to verse 20. Here's, here's James's summary statement of all these things he said in all five chapters here. You know, when, when you get done with somebody, you always summarize. So he, can, so he summarizes what he said right here. Let's see what he says. Chapter 5, verse 20. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. In other words, if he gets somebody to quit sinning, he saves them from death and offers him the opportunity for life. So sin has everything to do with life and death. Sin is a life and death matter for New Testament Christians. And shall hide a multitude of sins. We've all sinned, but those sins need to be hidden. Where can they be hidden? Can you hide your sins? Be sure they'll find you out sooner or later. The only way they can be hidden is under the blood of Christ. That's the only place that they're permanently hidden. They go away. They're not there anymore. Totally hidden. Do we have time for Peter? Let's go to 1 Peter 1. Now, Peter was made the head of the New Testament church. There's been arguments about James and Peter. Well, we just went through James. We'll go through Peter, and we'll cover both bases. Who's on first? doesn't really matter. They're both apostles of God. Okay? So what they say carries weight, and God put it in the Bible. And it carries all the weight in the world. So this is the first epistle general of Peter. And Peter was what? an apostle of Emmanuel the Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and so on. And he says in verse 2, Elect, 
So he's writing not to just physical Israelites, but to the elect of God. Okay? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so he's saying, I'm writing to you people who are part of those who have been elected to be a part of the church of God, candidates to be in the kingdom of God, the 144,000. So these are converted Christians that he's writing to. It's important to know who the letter's going to. Because if it's not going to you, then it doesn't matter. But if you're a converted Christian, and he said, to those that I send to you, and them that succeed them, when he was talking to the Pharisees. If you don't accept them, I have nothing to do with you. So, Peter and those who are preaching what Peter had to say, okay? The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God knew about all of you. He called you. You can only come by the Father drawing you, John six forty four. Can't come any other way. Through setting aside, which is what sanctification means. It's kind of a spiritual sounding word, but it just means set aside, set apart. Set aside through the Spirit unto... Now, you were set aside by the Spirit of God. This is a converted person with the Spirit of God. Unto obedience. First thing out of his mouth, once he got the salutation out, is you're supposed to obey. Well, I'll be jiggered. And sprinkling of the blood of the Christ. So he said, you're supposed to be living in obedience according to the law, and combined with that, the blood of Christ, to cover the times you screw up. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Let's go down to verse 22. I don't want to spend too much time in these because I I wanted to summarize, but man, this stuff's good in here. If you want to keep the law. If you don't, this is terrible stuff. You need to get back to Galatians in a hurry. All right, let's go to verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying, there's that word again, the truth through the Spirit. Oh, this is, this is, has to do with the Holy Spirit of God. Obeying through the Spirit. It takes the Spirit of God to give you the capacity to understand and to obey the law of God, doesn't it? Otherwise, you'd be like anybody else out here, da 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 da, I'll just do whatever I feel like doing today. <laughs> No. The Holy Spirit led us to understand there's a better way. Now I lost my place. Where am I here? Verse 22. Um, Obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Pure, correct, heartfelt, the right kind of love, unfeigned. Not fake, not false. What's the false love? The false love is the love of Protestants, if you will. It's the one who says, Oh, I just love the brethren. I just love you so much. We're so full of love, give me a hug here. And then they stab them in the back. Which is what Protestant churches are all about. 
Now, that's feigned love. That's not real love. The real love is keeping the commandments and treating them the way you would want to be treated. I do not like knives in my back. I, I, I perceive that would hurt. And yet we've all been some figuratively stabbed in the back, haven't we? And there's not one here who hasn't stabbed somebody else in the back. Or is there an exception? Could I see the hand of someone who's never done that? I didn't think so. And I don't think you're just not answering that because you don't like these, have you ever heard of, questions that we sometimes ask. We don't like to be put on the spot. If you were there and done that, you wouldn't say, yeah, I we don't do that. We don't respond when people say, let me see the hands up. We all turn. We don't like to hear that. Gordon does it all the time. I sit back there and he, he'll say, well, how many of you, I just see you shrink. You don't do no good. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. We were begotten of corruptible seed, weren't we? Human beings. Now we're being begotten of God in heaven, which is incorruptible. That's life. That's the tree of life. But of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So these are living words. This is a new and living way based on the law of God as brought forward in the New Testament, where it is even more binding than ever it was before. Before you could think of sin all day, now you're not even supposed to think of it. That's tougher. That's harder. That's a much higher standard. It's much easier to think of sin than it is to sin. Plenty easy to sin. But it's harder not to even think about it. Oh man, that one's tough. You think Christianity's easy? You don't have to fight yourself? I think not. Chapter 2, verse 21. Even hereunto were you called. Okay, what he's talking about here is our calling. He's talking here, uh, let's see, verse 24. What glory is it if you, when you be buffeted or persecuted for your faults, you shall take that patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, and you take that patiently, this is acceptable. I mean, you deserve all the garbage you get for doing what's wrong. But if you didn't do wrong, and you still take criticism patiently, then there's, there's good in that. That's acceptable to God. For even here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us. He was the first, the best Christian ever to walk. The, the thing was named after him, wasn't it? Christianity. This way of life is named after Christ. He's the best one that ever did it. The only one that ever lived it perfectly. What did he do? He also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. What, where did his steps go? who did no sin. Oh, he never broke the law. 
And Peter is saying that we're not supposed to break it either. Wow! That's a revelation. Do you realize... Now, you know this. You sit here who are listening on the phone line or will hear this later by tape. You already know this, most of you. So this is no revelation. But what if you were a really good Protestant sitting in a Methodist or Baptist church and some preacher walked up there to that pulpit in that front of picture of Jesus up there and told you that you don't sin anymore? That would be a revelation. That's not what the preacher told you last week. He said you just live by grace and once saved, always sin and sin can't touch you anymore. Once saved, always saved and sin can't touch you anymore. Didn't he? That's not what Peter says. He says you, do, you be just like Christ and don't sin. What is sin? Sin is a transgression of the law. Oh. Neither was guile found in his mouth. What is guile? Guile is something you use to deceive someone to create a lie. That's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? He didn't lie. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins. What does dead to it mean? That means you don't do it anymore. You don't sin anymore should live unto righteousness. He's contrasting sin or breaking the law to righteousness. In other words, you can't be righteous and sin or break the law. So the sin, the law then is very much intact and valid and forceful. Because if you sin, you will not be unrighteous or you will not be righteous. And the unrighteous will not have a part in the kingdom of God. We'll read that a little later. Not today, but we'll get to it. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Did the law lead us to Christ as a teacher? Yes. And now that the law, which is good and holy and just and wonderful, has led us to Him, then we're to live like Him and follow in His steps, and He never broke it. Oh, wow. How clear can it get? Uh, chapter 4. Let's go to verse 7. We're getting near the end of this book of Peter. First book of Peter. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. So he's saying, and he thought that the kingdom of God was coming soon, even in his own lifetime, but God hadn't told him that or Christ hadn't. But we're getting a whole lot closer to it than he was, Okay. So we know the, the end of all things is near. <coughs> Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Spend a lot of time thinking serious thoughts and praying. You're not going to find much of that on a computer screen or a phone screen or a, any of those things. Somebody took exception to me and they thought I was saying that the Facebook or Farmville or any of those things is sin. Not necessarily. It depends on how much time you spend there and what you do when you're there. 
I said in that sermon that TV and radio and all those things are not of and by themselves sinful. Is pornography? Yes. Can you find pornography on a television? Yes. I mean, on a, well, yeah, I can find it on a television. You can find it on a computer is what I was thinking. Real easy. There's a lot of things on there that you should not partake of. Now, is it a sin to be on Facebook? That depends on you. It depends on whether you spend all your time on that or in thinking sober thoughts and praying because the end is near. If you waste hours of time on Farmville, that is a sin. What sin is it? It breaks the first and great commandment. You're putting it ahead of Almighty God. Because the time left over after work, after eating, after bathing, after sleeping, is precious time, and it's easy to waste and not devote any to God. Or very little. Half an hour. An hour on Farmville could be sin. Is Farmville a sin? It's a superfluous waste of time, but not sin per se, unless you put it ahead of God and taking care of your relationship with Him and your relationship with your neighbors. Now, you figure your day out. You figure out how much time you need to work. Six days a week, it says. And you don't think your own thoughts on Sabbath, so you don't do Farmville or all that stuff on Sabbath, period. It is a sin on the Sabbath, because it's thinking your own thoughts and doing your own thing. So it is outright a breaking of the Sabbath. But look at your average day. You're supposed to work. If not, you're not supposed to eat. So if you don't work, then you don't eat. So that gives you a lot of time for Farmville. You could, you know. But if you work, and therefore if you eat, and if you bathe, and if you sleep a normal amount, you only have a few hours left. How are you going to use them? Will they be in pursuing your relationship with God and your neighbor? And how much time will you have left over for other things that really don't amount to a whole lot, but that are just kind of nice, in your opinion? How much time do you have? Now, if you don't devote your time to God and to your neighbor then that time that was robbed from God in your neighbor can become sin. So is Facebook sin? No. If you spend very much time at it, yes. Because it means you are leaving out things that are far, far more important and they could cause you to break the first and great commandment and the second which is likened to it. See what I mean? So, you and you alone can determine whether those things are sin for you or not based on how much time you spend doing that and not doing what you ought to be doing. There's the key.
Seek ye first the kingdom of God. If ye have any time left for Farmville, then seek that, I suppose. There you have it. I'm about out of time. Boy, you're glad I'm not about to shut up, aren't you? Let's see if we can finish this. Uh, I had chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Above all things, verse 8, have fervent love. Fervently. That is, what, what's fervent? There's a, there's a quick hug and there's a fervent hug. Do we know the difference? Yeah, probably. Fervent love among yourselves. That is, you very carefully and lovingly and emotionally take care of your neighbor as you would yourself. Oh. Fervently love yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. What did Christ do? He kept the commandments perfectly. He never broke them. He was perfect in love. That is, this is the love of God. You keep the commandments. Never had a problem that way. So his love covered all our sins. Now, if we love our neighbors as ourselves, that love, which is similar in the same thing as the love of Christ, will cover a multitude of sins. It is our job to help cover sins, not expose them. It is the glory of God to cover sin, not tell somebody about it. And we all screw up. Because we do not love ourselves or our neighbor or God perfectly, by any means. So we all mess it up. Well, all I'm saying is, let's change as fast as we can. Because at our best, we're still going to mess up. Just the way it is. We're still human. Let's go on down to about verse 18 here. Well, let's go 17. For the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? You mean the gospel of God requires obedience? Wow! I thought it was just grace. No! It's obedience. Judgment's coming, and we're trying to obey. What is it going to be like for those that don't even try to obey? And that's not just talking about hoodlums. That's talking about people who claim to be Christian and think they are, but don't obey. And if the righteous scarcely be saved. I thought it was a great big happy happy where you come in and you get baptized in the Lord and you're saved and now it's just happy happy. Is that what this is saying? It says the righteous are scarcely saved. It's not a great big happy, happy eternal life tree. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If those who really work at it and try to be righteous are just barely saved, where do sinners appear? They don't. They die. Wherefore, let him... Let them that suffer according to the will of God. I had somebody tell me a few years ago, Oh, I understand now. I don't have to fight it. I don't have to work. It's easy now. 
what are you reading? Well, you're reading something in Paul, probably in the international translation or something, which is not the Bible. It is a paraphrase. Anybody that reads the international Bible is not reading the Word of God. Can I make that clear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing. That's works, well-doing. As unto a faithful Creator. Now, is there much question what Peter thinks, what James thinks of the law? Well, let's stop right there and we'll pick this up again. I want this abundantly clear. Clear. 